This message first aired on the radio on February 11th, 2004. Today we're taking up the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and as we do, I feel it necessary to warn us off of taking this chapter for granted or thinking that we know what it's about, because while it is one of the most oft-quoted chapters of Scripture, especially at weddings and so forth, and as we come to it, we need to consider uh, where it's coming from, where it's heading to, and what the Apostle is trying to do and to teach in this passage. We're going to be talking about the way of love. We're going to talk about the way of agapeo. But before we do, let's remind ourselves where we've come from. We have this verse in verse 31 of chapter 12. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I you a more excellent way. Now the question is, how do you take verse 31? It can be taken a couple of ways. In one way, it can be taken as in a hortatory sense or as an exhortation, which would say, for example, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way, as if the apostle is telling the Corinthians to covet the best gifts. Well, we're going to see later that that probably is not the proper way to read it, and uh, there is another way to read this which makes just the same sense. It would be an observation rather than an exhortation. You see, if uh, there's an exhortation here, then the apostle is commanding them to do this. On the other hand, he may merely be observing, and I think this is the best sense of the verse. But you, and you can imply the you, but you covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. We do have a disjunctive here. We do have a statement here that is conjoined and disjunctive, a conjunctive disjunctive, if we might say, which gives us the thought on the one hand, on the other hand. And so on the one hand, I believe we can read this logically. On the one hand, the Corinthians desired, strongly desired, the more eminent charismata, but, on the other hand, Paul was going to show them a more excellent way. And now when we see a way that's according to excellence, that's in contradistinction to a way that is not according to excellence. And certainly the way that the Corinthians were going was not according to excellence. There are two reasons that the way that the Corinthians were going is not of excellence. And therefore, Paul is here going to show them the way of excellence. And the two reasons that they were not going according to excellence is, number one, they were looking to aggrandize themselves. They were going the way of self-aggrandizement, uh, the way of self-honor, frankly, the way of the Gentiles. Who would be the greatest? Secondly, they were desiring and they were really bickering and squabbling over something that wasn't going to last. That's what we find all the time as we act according to the old nature or according to sin instead of according to faith. We find that we're always bickering and squabbling over things that will not last. Now, what, is, what are they squabbling over? They're squabbling over, apparently, uh, becoming more eminent in the exercise of gifts in the Corinthian assembly. You'll see that especially better as you read the 14th chapter, where the apostle imposes a rule of discipline on the exercise of the charismatic gifts in this apostolic church due to the effect that the flesh is having 
on the operation of the use of those gifts in the Corinthian assembly. Just as he had to impose a discipline on the way they ate their meals before the Lord's Supper by telling them to eat at home because they were coming together for the worse rather than the better, he will be imposing a discipline on the exercise of the charismatic gifts that they have because they exercising them are also coming together for the worse and not the better. But here he says, you are doing this, you are coveting the more eminent charismata, the grace gifts, you really strongly desire these, but I'm going to show you a way that is toward excellence, or a more excellent way. It's not actually a more excellent way. In fact, if you think about more excellent, you would have to find that to be contradictory in and of itself. More is a comparative, excellence is a superlative, so you can't have more excellence. You either have excellence or you don't. It's a superlative. More, however, is a comparative. Now that gets the sense here because he is comparing one way to the way they're going. So really, it would be better translated, I believe, if he said, I will show you the way to excellence because you're not on the way to excellence. The Corinthians were on the way to decadence, of course, and to something less than excellence. And the twofold reason, one, because they were looking to enhance their own standing instead of build up the body of Christ, and the second reason is because they were adhering to something that isn't going to last. So now we turn to the 13th chapter. With this in mind and the direction he's going, we turn to the 13th chapter where he says, though or if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love or charity, as the King James reads, but this is agape or agapeo, I have not love, I am become as sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. Now we're going to spend a little time in this first verse so that if we, because we know that if we are off to a bad start, we're going to go a bad way through this chapter. We want to get off to a very good start. First of all, he is not implying here that he does speak, but he says if. He's taking a theoretical case. Of course, the apostle did speak in other languages. In fact, in other places, he said, I speak in tongues more than all of you do. Of course, he's an apostle. He has all the gifts. He has all the obvious gifts and the sign gifts of the that a believer could have. This is a gift signifying believers. It's a miraculous gift. People say, do you believe in tongues? Absolutely I believe in tongues. I believe in the miraculous gift of speaking in languages. When I read the occasions where I find it in the scripture, especially there at Pentecost, I see a great reversal of the confusion that God brought in Babel when he first invented all the different languages. And the one who, who, the one who invented all the languages is certainly able and did enable his servants to speak in many different languages so that the hearers heard the good news of Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom in their own mother tongues. Now what I don't believe in is the pretense that is today. There is a pretense today, and it's been very popular, oh, for 150 years, it's become more or less popular, but there is a pretense today that this miraculous gift operates. And yet, as we investigate each and every instance of where it's claimed, we find that there's nothing like the gift of languages that we see in the scripture. In fact, 
it's reduced to vain babbling, which is something that is from the Gentiles and was common among the Gentiles and is still common. There are all kinds of ecstatic babblings common in pagan religions today around the world. That is not the speaking in languages. Well, I could go on about that, but I'm jumping ahead. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now here, we should pay attention to what it does not say. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. It doesn't say tongues of men and tongues of angels as if there is an angelic language. When angels speak, they speak in the same languages that men have. Here we have the word tongues, meaning language or mother tongue. Though I speak with the language of men and of angels, language controls both parties. So, the language of men is the same as the language of angels, and the language of angels is the same as language of men. You say, well, what language did angels speak? Well, when angels visit men, they take upon the oiketerion, or the heavenly body that is prepared for them. Obedient angels will take upon the form of a man, and they'll come and they will speak to the man in the language he speaks. They use the language of men. So here now the apostle says, If I speak with a language, with a miraculously given language, which is, by the way, a language of men and angels, it's a known language, it's, it's known by someone who hears it and understands it, and I don't have love or charity, this is agape, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now we'll take a bit of time here to just look at the word agape or agapeo, the verb form agapeo, which is to love, translated love, and this we have in God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see the love of God here demonstrated. That is the word agape. Now, God loves based on principle, and that's what agapeo is. It's a love based on the principle. Well, what principle is it that God loves upon? It is a principle found in himself. It's a principle found in himself and only in himself. God is unchanging. God That means God is immutable. He cannot change. He cannot deny himself. He is infinitely reliable. God being infinite reliable and unchanging makes him the most principled being we can even imagine. That is to say, God acts out of himself. And God is love, we find that in the scripture. God is agape. He is agapeo. So God, acting out of his own nature, loved the world and demonstrated it through the death of his son. Now that's agape. It is something foreign to man. It is something foreign to man. It is something unnatural to man. There are natural affections, which men have, and we call them love. Now there are two other words for love in the Greek language that uh, are used and that apply under certain circumstances. The first other word besides agape is phileo, phileo, from which we understand to be family love or familial love. This is the love based on the relationship between two parties. But God's love, 
his agape, is based on the principle inside himself and precedes a relationship between two parties. It is love based on the principle on the inside of the lover. It is the principle based on the inside of the lover. Now, God has established in the new nature, when someone is born again, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he establishes the principle of grace, his gracious giving to us on the basis of our faith. He also creates a new nature in the believer after Christ Jesus that is modeled after our Lord Jesus Christ, who had power to lay his life down, who did lay his life down, and who took it up again. So he also demonstrated the love of God the Father. He has the same love. God is love. The Lord Jesus Christ is also love. He is also agape. He is the one who loves based on his own goodness. His own goodness. And so here the apostle points out that we have this principled love implanted into us in the new nature. When we're born again, we are born with a nature that not only does not sin, but we are born with a nature that loves, that loves, that reflects the very nature of God in that it loves. Now you say, well, how does it, how do we do that? How do we agapeo? Well, that's why 1 Corinthians 13 is written. Of course, there is much of the scripture written to teach us how to love. This is not a natural thing. Now, we still have natural love. We have family love. We have phileo. Uh, We love our brothers, our sisters, our father, mother, aunts, uncles, cousins, close friends. We have that, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God commends also that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We also have a, a word that we call love that maybe Maybe we shouldn't call it love, but it's sexual attraction, deep sexual attraction. This is the Greek word eros, which has to do with our sexuality and enjoying sexual relations with our mates. And, of course, uh, that kind of affection, that kind of emotion can also be misdirected in other ways. But that we won't be dealing with, and we're not going to be dealing with the phileo or familial love today. There are other times we need to do that because the Lord has that love toward his family, the family of God, which is the church, which is his body. So we now see if I speak with tongues, if I have, and here's his transition, he says, if I have this charismatic gift and I don't have love, then I become like something. And what do I become like? Well, he says, I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. What's a sounding brass? Well, maybe if you're as old as me, you might remember the gong show. It's the gong. If you go to the symphony, it's that big uh, brass uh, timpani back there that makes that deep carrying noise. And what's a tinkling cymbal? Well, that's your triangle. And if you hear the triangle, it's it's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum of the sounding brass. The one is the deep booming brass. The other one is the high-pitched tinkling brass. Now some say, well, if I speak with tongues of men and angels and I don't have love, I become some kind of obnoxious noisemaker. Well, let me tell you something. I've heard sounding brass and I've heard tinkling cymbals and neither one of them are obnoxious noisemakers. In fact, it's a very pleasant sound. And I don't mind saying that when I was a little boy, 
I played the chimes, and uh, I think we sounded pretty good. So when we come back after this brief message, we'll talk about what it means to be like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'm John Malone, and this is BibleStudy.net. Well, we're taking up just the first verse so far of 1 Corinthians 13, and I trust we're spending our time well nonetheless. We come now to the last part where he says, I become as a sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. And you maybe just heard me say that I don't think those are unpleasant sounds, and in fact, they're not unpleasant sounds. Here, uh, the roaring brass, as we might read it, is a very energetic sound. The tinkling cymbal here is a, a quiet sound. In fact, the word tinkling, we get the word we use the word tinkling, and in fact, it sounds a little bit like tinkle, tinkle, and that's a onomatopoetic word. Also, in the text here, we have a word that is onomatopoetic. It is a lalazo, and that is a word used for a number of things, including a symbol here, but also used for a shout, a triumphant shout, usually at the beginning of a battle where Israel was told to shout and then to attack. And so we have this idea of a starting sound, of a starting sound. And in fact, that's what it is. In the temple worship, they used a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal to stop the music that was going on and to commence the true worship, which was the human voice. And in the temple services, there were music, there was certain music allowed. But when the true worship started, it was only the sound of the human voice, and that was what was deemed the highest and most praiseworthy to God. I think it is true the human voice is a marvelous instrument. If you listen to the music of BibleStudy.net, for example, many of the songs that we play, even though it may sound like there's 44 or 5 or 8 people singing, it's just two men's voice uh, singing a very wonderful sound. Well, it's not only a beautiful sound, but it's pleasing to the Lord. And something else I'll tell you is that all, of all the creatures on earth, only men sing. Only men sing. So here he's saying, well, we won't go off into the whole idea of concept of music and how much the human voice should enter into our worship and so forth like that, uh, although it's an interesting topic. What we want to say is the apostle is saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and I don't have charity... I am like a starting sound. I am like the final sound before the true worship begins. I'm like the inaugurating sounds of the true worship, but not the actual true worship. What is he saying? He's saying that though I exercise a charismatic gift, if I don't have love, I am stopping short of the excellent way. In fact, God is bringing in this excellent way, and the other thing is terminating. You see, the sounding brass and the tinkling cymbal terminated the artificially created music, or the instrument created music, and God brought in the true worship of the human voice. So the apostle makes the analogy. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, and I don't have love, I'm not going to go forward into the more excellent way when the tongues stop. And we'll get to the tongue stopping in just a minute here, but he's telling the Corinthians, he's warning them, if you hang on to these charismatic gifts, these eminent charismata, 
that you enjoy so much and that you think make you look so good, you're holding on to something that's stopping. You're holding on to something that God will terminate. And the true worship, the better thing, the more excellent way that God begins, you're not going to be on track for that because you don't have agapeo or a principled love. That's the introduction. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Now he goes down to verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy. Of course, he's walking down a couple of gifts here. He starts out with tongues. Uh, That's because it's a big problem in the Corinthian church. He, He now says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing, or I have not love. Well, Now we see the gift of prophecy. He says, though I have the gift of prophecy, or if I have it, and of course he does have it, and understand all mysteries. Of course, the apostle not only understands the mysteries, but he's the one to whom the mysteries are given. So he unites it here with the gift of prophecy, because the prophetic gift, that is to say, you see, the scriptures are called the graphicon prophetica. So they are the prophetic scriptures, the prophetic writings. That's what this New Testament is actually called in the New Testament, the prophetic writings. And so here the apostle receives, he has a gift of prophecy, he receives the prophecy, and he actually writes the prophetic writings containing not only the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also very great mysteries. And he said, though I have this, or if I have it, and I do, And, he says, all knowledge. Well, what's this knowledge? I believe that the knowledge he's referring to is the same knowledge that he's going to talk about in verse 8. That knowledge is instant knowledge as if you have learned it, but you never went through the process of learning. In that sense, it corresponded to speaking in tongues. Here a person spoke a language without going through the process of learning that language. He spoke someone's mother tongue without going through the process of learning it. Here, the gift of knowledge is also to know something as if you actually had gone through the course of study or gotten to know it, however empirically you might have done that, and yet you still had the knowledge. It was a a sign gift. It marked that God has done some amazing thing. We don't have that going on today. People that know all about chemistry, they study all about chemistry. People that know about physics, they study about physics. People that know about geography, they study about geography, and so forth and so on. People that know something about the Bible, study the Bible. But here he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and if I have all knowledge, which is also a gift, or if I have faith so that I could remove mountains... Here is faith that is given by God, amazing faith to believe, a very strong instant faith to believe something without going through the process of being persuaded of it. And, and of course, it's never misplaced. That's miraculous faith. None of these things today operate. All of those things operated with Paul. He's saying something more, and in addition to what he said in the first verse, he says, I am not anything if I don't have love. So not only if I do, on the one hand, I cling to this and I don't have love, I'm just like something that's stopping, but also I have not achieved anything in the Christian life. I am my nothing. I am unattained. I am unprofited. 
I am actually nothing. It's the worst thing you can say about yourself is I'm just totally worthless. You could say I'm totally worthless if I have all this valuable stuff and I don't have love because I am missing that excellent way that God is bringing in. And now he says this, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, I am not profited one whit, or it profits me nothing. Now here, let me tell you that love is not those deeds, which is what people say so much today. He said, well, you know, show, they'll tell you, show your love by giving me money so we can buy these people goods, the poor. Or, I love people, look, I give to charities. Well, none of that is going to be defined here as love. Love is a principle within. Love is a characteristic of the new nature that gets expression in certain ways. And you might think, wow, somebody gives his, all of his goods to feed the poor. He must love a lot. That's not what it says. Here he says, though I give my body to be burned. He says, here, now, I'm lit up by Nero. I must love a lot. He, no. In fact, you can do those things. You can do both of those acts and not necessarily have principled love. And therefore, those acts become unprofitable. God wants to demonstrate himself. And how did God demonstrate himself? He demonstrated himself best in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He did not come to teach us the way to go. He came to die. And let me say that now he undertakes in our behalf through the scriptures to teach us the way to go, to teach us how to go that way, the way of the cross, the way of God's demonstrated love. Now, love is not whatever you think it is. And so you do better than to just go out and try to do it, to read the scriptures and to understand what love is. And let me now explain the why of love. The why of love is that we love, or we can love, or we have agapeo, uh, not because of something we have done, but because God first loved us. Uh, the scripture says, we love because he first loved us. Now, some mistranslate that or read a bad translation that says we love him because he first loved us, but that's not true. We love, period, we agapeo, just period, because he loved us with a principled love. And so if it's a principled love, if agapeo is a principled love, and this is the more excellent way, we do well to examine what those principles are what the principles of that love is, and we see that in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and part of the 8th verse. So, we're eager to get there. Let's just read through. Love, and I'm, gonna, I'm reading the King James Version, but I'm going to use the word love in place of charity here, uh, because we have taken the word charity in our generations to mean something else. We believe it to mean bestowing our goods to feed the poor. So I'm going to take that liberty with the King James Version and use the word love here in place of charity. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, 
seeks not its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, charity never, love never falls, never falls. It never comes down. Now, we'll just look at these characteristics, which are many, and we'll take them one at a time, and what we want to inspect is what these words actually say and what it means, because again, uh, there is a lot of misconception about what this principled love is. And remember, if it's love based on a principle that's within, it is not going to be moved by the object without. Let me repeat that. If agapeo is love based on a principle within, it will not and cannot be moved by the object of the love that is without. This God demonstrated. God is angry with the wicked every day. The world is in enmity against God. God loved the world based on himself, a principle of his own self, that he is good, that he is love, and he demonstrated it to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died not for the, his friends, but for the ungodly. And so our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated the love. It's a love based on principle. I think that's much better than to say it's self-sacrificing love. Of course, it is self-sacrificing love, but whenever we sacrifice ourselves, that doesn't necessarily mean that we love, because we have the scripture that we've just read, though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. It is possible to sacrifice your body and yet not have love. So, charity suffers long. Now, what does that mean? Well, it Charity puts up with a lot. Love puts up with a lot. Again, we see this in our Lord Jesus Christ. He put up with the enmity against himself. We see this with God the Father, where the whole human race has been an enmity against him for 6,000 years or so, and yet with the enmity that God has, he still loves you, and he still offers you a free salvation. So we see that love suffers long. It just hangs in there. It's just very patient. It's very patient. Now here we have the word is kind. Love is kind. Now we may say, well, what is kindness? What is this kindness? Some people think it's nice talk. Some people think it's polite speech or mellow talk. We have other things about that where we'll see the characteristic of the disposition. What this word kind means is that love is useful to others. Love gives itself to be used by others, to be useful. I take what I have, I'm available, and I'm useful. These are the most obvious characteristics of kindness, availability and usefulness. Now, by the grace of God, you see, God is busy being gracious to all. That is to say, he gives whoever they are what they need, when they need it. Now, this kindness corresponds to the graciousness of God, whereby we are his instrumentalities, we are his people, we are his weapons, and therefore love is useful to others when and where they need it, regardless, therefore, of the inconvenience that it may place. That's what this kindness means. 
it means to be available and to be useful and to be at the disposal of others who, frankly, may not ask, who may not afford, uh, or may not even like the help that you give. So that's kindness. That's kindness. Here, charity says it. Here it says, love envies not. Uh, envy is also a root word of our word zealous, and envy has to do with an aggressive opposition to someone because they despise the success of the other party. The Bible says no one can stand against jealousy. The Bible says that jealousy, or en- for envy, they killed the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a despicable aspect of human nature, and love has nothing to do with it. We'll be back in just a minute. This is BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. We're in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we've come into the fourth verse. Uh, We're not making a lot of progress in terms of number of verses, but we are making progress in understanding what love is and what it's not. Now, we see that love is kind. We see it does not envy. I think that's a pair. Now we have love vaunts not itself. Here's something love does not do. A lot of what we know about love is what it's not. It's not the thing that we naturally do. This word vaunt is the word that we get our word perpetrator, one who puts himself forward in a way he ought not. This is not one who volunteers his kindness and his services. This is one who puts himself forward to take that which is not evidently his. Uh, he puts himself forward in a way that marks is marked by presumption and that is marked by gain for one's own self. Love vaunts not itself. When you put yourself forward in a way to secure for yourself honor, glory, position, money, or your own will, that is not love. Love waits. It doesn't put itself forward. It doesn't become a perpetrator. Love may become a victim. We'll see that. Love does become a victim, in fact. But love does not perpetrate oneself. This personification of love, of course, is the personification of the new nature, and it should mark every child of God, everyone who's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see love does not vaunt itself and is also not puffed up. Here's another pair. These two go together. The one who is arrogant becomes the one who is presumptuous. And he just puts himself forward into other matters, other people's matters. He may even put himself forward in his own matters at the expense of others without thinking of others. That's vaunting itself. And, of course, uh, love is also not puffed up. That's arrogant. In fact, we've seen our friend here puffed up in the book of Romans and in 1 Corinthians, where the Corinthians are told, we build up. We don't puff up. Well, puff up has to do with being a balloon. That's exactly what the word means. Love is not a balloon. Well, of course, a balloon is full of hot air and is easily popped. But a building is not full of hot air and easily popped. A building is established. So here we'll see that there's the difference between being a balloon and being someone of substance. Love is no balloon. Love is a person of real substance. Now here we have verse 5. Love does not behave itself unseemly. Now here this has to do with love just not bringing criticism really to others and to itself. A shameful criticism does not behave itself in an unseemly way. 
does not become obnoxious with others. Now here, the next thing, does not seek its own. This is another pair, I think, because obnoxious people are busy seeking their own all the time. They're looking after their own things, they're looking after their own people, and uh, this is not the way of love. One of the great problems you have in a church, for example, is that families interact. And as families interact, you can have unsaved children, for example, you can have unsaved people around, and we have, uh, of course, immature Christian people around, and as families uh, in, begin to interact, you begin to have faults that need to be discovered and found out. One of the worst unloving things is this idea of not my kid. Oh, not my child. I know your child is a real bad one, but mine, uh, no, he's, he's a good one. And uh, if he ever does evil, it's because your child pushed him into it. Well, uh, love doesn't seek its own. In fact, love looks upon the things of others first and trusts God that God will take care of your things. Brother or sister, have you ever tried it? Just look after the things of others. Be energetic and be thoughtful and look for opportunities to advance the cause and the welfare of your brother and sister and see if it isn't the case that God will take care of you a whole lot better than you would take care of yourself by looking after your own or seeking your own. It's just not a good way to go. In fact, when everybody seeks their own, we have the Apostle Paul abandoned in the faith. He said, nobody stood with me. They're all seeking after their own things. And that's what we have today in the churches. Don't tell me differently. I've been around too much. I know. Well, seeks not her own. Is not, and here the King James reads, is not easily provoked, but actually love is never provoked. Now, does that mean that whenever you're provoked, uh, you're not loving? Yes, that's exactly what it means. You say, well, I get provoked all the time. Well, then you don't love all the time. Whenever you're provoked, you're not loving. And what is that provoke? That provocation is lashing back. Now, the least you can do is take measures to keep your lashing back to yourself. We live in a society full of email and full of the opportunity to very quickly give expression to ourselves, whether by phone or email or whatever. And uh, I have taken something that helps me, especially with my email, is that when I have that provocation and I just want to lash back at somebody, I'll stick my email in the drafts folder and maybe I'll never send it or I'll rewrite it before I send it. And let me tell you, friends, that saved me a lot of embarrassment because the fact is love is not provoked, but I get provoked. And when we read about this, we see that it's the new nature we see it's the new nature. And of course, if we say we have no sin, we lie and don't do the truth, we all more or less fail at this. And the problem is the more failure, not the less failure, but we all fail at these things. And yet, we come to the scripture and we agree, love is not provoked. Love just sits there and takes it. And it takes it, and it takes it. And we'll see that when we come to the seventh and eighth chapter, we're going to see that love has to take it because, let me assure you, against the one who loves, against the one who is the Lord's own, who has the new nature, there is plenty dished out. Happily, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. You never have an excuse. You may have your reasons. You never have an excuse, and all your reasons are bad reasons. 
love not provoked, not at all, because it's based on principle, you see, and so it doesn't take into account the object of its love. It takes into account merely the principle that God has placed in us, indeed created after Christ Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Can you imagine what it would have been had the Lord Jesus been provoked? Of course, it's not possible for him to be provoked, but uh, can you imagine what it would have been, the whole universe up in smoke? Well, we won't think on that. We meditate instead on his goodness to us in that he loved us, and he still loves us. Okay, here, verse 5, the end, love thinks no evil. Now, what does that mean? And what that means, that love does not plot out evil. That's what that means. Uh, It doesn't mean that love is Pollyanna, that love is just ignorant, that evil is around. What it really means here is that love doesn't consider the evil and then respond to it. It discerns evil. Of course, the mature Christian who loves much also has his senses exercised to discern good from evil. Our our senses are trained to discern good from evil. So it isn't that evil is never considered. It is that evil is not reckoned when determining how to act. That has to do, by the way, with not being provoked. It's a pair. It has to do with not lashing back. Verse 7, here, this has to do with what kind of a fan of life are you? Verse 7, two things, another pair. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And here's what love is. Love is cheering for the truth and cheering against evil, against the lie, against lawlessness. Love sits back and cheers against lawlessness and in favor of truth. Now, we have that going on today. In fact, the mystery of iniquity or lawlessness is at work in the world, and love does not applaud it. Love cheers for truth. Love is always on the right side. You know, I know many people who find their way onto the wrong side and then just sit there. Love finds its way on the right side of an issue and cheers truth along in all of its many forms. Does that mean that love opposes lawlessness? Absolutely, love opposes lawlessness, but love opposes lawlessness in accordance with the very nature of love as described and defined here and elsewhere in the scripture. Uh, Now, we see a series of characteristics in verse 7 that lead to the final conclusion or that culminate in the final conclusion of what love is in verse 8. Love bears all things. Well, what does that mean, bears all things? That means that love is going to be challenged it's going to be met with evil. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You will be in the spiritual war. In fact, you are in the spiritual war. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are your enemies, and you will be assaulted and assailed from morning to night. Every day has enough evil. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough evil today to destroy you and your character and your reputation. So here it says love bears all that gets thrown at it. Love believes all things. Well, what does this mean, believes? This means believes despite all things. Love continues in faith. Love doesn't believe lies. Love doesn't believe uh, stories that are unbelievable. That what it means is that love continues to believe. Here we have the 
principle of faith intermingled with the principle of love. Love continues to believe God despite whatever circumstances are thrown upon us. This we see with Job. Even his wife advised him, maybe even especially his wife advised him, curse God and die. Yet Job never cursed God or answered uh, foolishly toward God. Job continued patiently. Job continued to believe. Love continues to believe. And when you fall into unbelief, you are not loving. That's a thought for you to have. Well, here it says, love hopes all things. So love also continues in hope. The same hope that God gives us, we continue in that hope at all times. We're able to give men an answer for the hope that is in us because we're busy loving. We have faith, we have hope, and love continues to believe and continues to hope under every circumstance. Here it is, endures all things. All things, all what kind of things? Well, you don't have to endure kindness. You don't have to endure prosperity. You don't have to endure the good things that you like. This has to do like a good night's sleep. This has to do with enduring all the opposition that is thrown against you. And let me tell you, friends, the Lord sees to it that that way is made known to you. That's the way of the cross. And what love does is it endures. When you see your brother or sister giving up in the faith, you see your spouse giving up in the faith, understand they have failed to love. And you can recover those principles right here and help them by pointing out that love continues in faith and love continues in hope regardless of the hostility or circumstances or opposition that comes up against it. In fact, charity or love, verse 8, never falls. We fall, but love doesn't fall. You'll never fall while you're loving. Every time you fall, it's not about love. Now that's something to think about because you may consider yourself to be a very loving person. You may consider yourself to be very loving. Most people that despise their brother consider themselves to be very loving people. Many people who don't consider themselves to be especially loving are pretty loving people according to these standards. Of course, considering yourself to be a very loving person is a bit of vaunting yourself, isn't it? Isn't it a little bit of being a balloon? Of being a little bit of an overblown Christian person in uh, overblown Christian clothing? Well, here, love never falls. When we fall, it's not about love. Now, there are other things that are going to fail, and those are some of the charismata, especially the eminent charismata. These things are going to fall. They're going to stop. As the apostle writes it here, he's trying to get these people on the right track. He's trying to get them focused on carrying out their love one to another. Now, you may say, well, where can I express my love? Where can I work on this? You work on this in the church, which is his body. The place to practice your love, sure in your family, sure with your neighbors, but especially practice it in your local church. God has a place for every one of us, a laboratory, to really learn about love. Uh, we've just talked about it out of the scripture today. And, uh, of course, we, we do uh, realize that God loves us, and we do realize that the scriptures have the answers to all of our issues Next time we take this up, we're going to look at not what didn't fail or what's not going to fail, but we're going to look at what is going to fail. 
I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. May God bless you till next time.